Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales. We are in our final week of Edgar Allan Poe in the final week of January. Ooh. Check out our schedule in the show notes to find out what next month will be for Black Clock Audio Tales and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Also check out Articulate Warbling with Zach Ferguson and also Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which will be coming out by the end of this month. So, hey, check out that, wait for that, look for that. Here we go, Edgar Allan Poe, Volume 5 of Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, don't get cold. Bunny slippers, dino sound slippers, s'more slippers, sports slippers, sci-fi, fantasy, cute critters, all kinds of cool stuff. And don't forget about found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You want to dress like Booger? You want to dress like Styles from Teen Wolf and wear a t-shirt that says, what are you looking at? Dino's? You can do that. Found item clothing. And remember, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and pgttcm.com. Look for us, pgttcm.com, Black Clock Audio Tales, and here you go with Edgar Allan Poe. All right, let's start. Never Bet the Devil Your Head, A Tale with a Moral, by Edgar Allan Poe. Contar que las costumbres de un autor, says Don Thomas de las Torres in the preface to his amatory poems. Se impuras y castas, importo muy poco que no sean igualmente severas sus obras. Meaning, in plain English, that provided the morals of an author are pure personally, it signifies nothing what are the morals of his books. We presume that Don Thomas is now in purgatory for the assertion. It would be a clever thing, too, in the way of poetical justice, to keep him there until his amatory poems get out of print, or are laid definitely upon the shelf through lack of readers. Every fiction should have a moral. And what is more to the purpose, the critics have discovered that every fiction has. Philip Melanchthon, some time ago, wrote a commentary upon the Petrochomyomachia and proved that the poet's object was to excite a distaste for sedition. Pierre Lassen, going a step further, shows that the intention was to recommend to young men temperance in eating and drinking. Just so, too, Jacobus Hugo has satisfied him that, by Eunice, Homer meant to insinuate John Calvin, by Antonius, Martin Luther, by the Lothophagi, Protestants in general, and by the Harpies, the Dutch. Our more modern scholiasts are equally acute. These fellows demonstrate a hidden meaning in the Antidiluvians, a parable in Powhatan, new views in Cock Robin, and transcendentalism in Hop o' My Thumb. In short, it has been shown that no man can sit down to write without a very profound design. Thus, to authors in general, much trouble is spared. A novelist, for example, need have no care of his moral. It is there, that is to say, it is somewhere, 
and the moral and the critics can take care of themselves. When the proper time arrives, all that the gentleman intended and all that he did not intend will be brought to light in the dial or the down-easter, together with all that he ought to have intended, and the rest that he clearly meant to intend, so that it will all come very straight in the end. There is no just ground, therefore, for the charge brought against me by certain ignoramuses that I have never written a moral tale, or, in more precise words, a tale with a moral. They are not the critics predestined to bring me out and develop my morals. That is the secret. By and by, the North American quarterly humdrum will make them ashamed of their stupidity. In the meantime, by way of staying execution, by way of mitigating the accusations against me, I offer the sad history appended, a history about whose obvious moral there can be no question whatever, since he who runs may read it in the large capitals which form the title of the tale. I should have credit for this arrangement, a far wiser one than that of La Fontaine and others, who reserve the impression to be conveyed until the last moment, and thus sneak it in at the fag end of their fables. Defuncti injuria ne aficionator was the law of the twelve tables, and de mortius nil nisi bonum is an excellent injunction, even if the dead in question be nothing but dead small beer. It is not my design, therefore, to vituperate my deceased friend Toby Dammit. He was a sad dog, it is true, and a dog's death it was that he died, but he himself was not to blame for his vices. They grew out of a personal defect in his mother. She did her best in the way of flogging him while an infant, for duties to her well-regulated mind were always pleasures, and babies like tough steaks or the modern Greek olive trees are invariably the better for beating. But, poor woman, she had the misfortune to be left-handed, and a child flogged left-handedly had better be left unflogged. The world revolves from right to left. It will not do to whip a baby from left to right. If each blow in the proper direction drives an evil propensity out, it follows that every thump in an opposite one knocks its quota of wickedness in. I was often present at Toby's chastisements, and even by the way in which he kicked, I could perceive that he was getting worse and worse every day. At last I saw through the tears in my eyes that there was no hope of the villain at all, and one day, when he had been cuffed until he grew so black in the face that one might have mistaken him for a little African, and no effect had been produced beyond that of making him wriggle himself into a fit, I could stand it no longer, but went down upon my knees forthwith, and uplifting my voice made prophecy of his ruin. The fact is that his precocity in vice was awful. At five months of age, he used to get into such passions that he was unable to articulate. At six months, I caught him gnawing a pack of cards. At seven months, he was in the constant habit of catching and kissing the female babies. At eight months, he preemptorily refused to put his signature to the temperance pledge. Thus, he went on increasing in iniquity month after month until at the close of the first year, he not only insisted upon wearing mustaches, but had contracted a propensity for cursing and swearing, and for backing his assertions by bets. 
through this latter most ungentlemanly practice the ruin which i had predicted to toby dammit overtook him at last the fashion had grown with his growth and strengthened him with strength so that when he came to be a man he could scarcely utter a sentence without interlarding it with a proposition to gamble not that he actually laid wagers and no i will do my friend the justice to say that he would as soon have laid eggs with him the thing was a mere formula nothing more his expressions on this head had no meaning attached to them whatever they were simple if not altogether innocent expletives imaginative phrases wherewith to round off a sentence when he said i'll bet you so-and-so nobody ever thought of taking him up but still i could not help thinking it my duty to put him down the habit was an immoral one and so i told him it was a vulgar one this i begged him to believe it was discountenanced by society here i said nothing but the truth it was forbidden by act of congress here i had not the slightest intention of telling a lie i remonstrated but to no purpose i demonstrated in vain i entreated he smiled i implored he laughed i preached he sneered i threatened he swore i kicked him he called for the police i pulled his nose he blew it and offered to bet the devil his head that i would not venture to try that experiment again poverty was another vice which the peculiar physical deficiency of dammit's mother had entailed upon her son he was detestably poor and this was the reason no doubt that his expletive expressions about betting seldom took a pecuniary turn i will not be bound to say that i ever heard him make use of such a figure of speech as i'll bet you a dollar it was usually i'll bet you what you please or i'll bet you what you dare or i'll bet you a trifle or else most significantly still i'll bet the devil my head this latter form seemed to please him best perhaps because it involved the least risk for dammit had become excessively parsimonious had any one taken him up his head was small and thus his loss would have been small too but these are my own reflections and i am by no means sure that i am right in attributing them to him at all events the phrase in question grew daily in favor notwithstanding the gross impropriety of a man betting his brains like banknotes but this was a point which my friend's perversity of disposition would not permit him to comprehend in the end he abandoned all other forms of wager and gave himself up to i'll bet the devil my head with a pertinacity and exclusiveness of devotion that displeased not less than it surprised me i am always displeased by circumstances for which i cannot account mysteries force a man to think and so injure his health the truth is there was something in the air with which mr dammit was wont to give utterance to his offensive expression something in his manner of enunciation which at first interested and afterwards made me very uneasy something which for want of a more definite term at present i must be permitted to call queer but which mr coleridge would have called mystical mr kant pantheistical mr carlyle twistical and mr emerson hyperquisitistical 
I began not to like it at all. Mr. Dammit's soul was in a perilous state. I resolved to bring all my eloquence into play to save it. I vowed to serve him as St. Patrick in the Irish Chronicle is said to have served the toad, that is to say, awaking him to a sense of his situation. I addressed myself to the task forthwith. Once more I betook myself to remonstrance. Again I collected my energies for a final attempt at expostulation. When I had made an end of my lecture, Mr. Dammit indulged himself in some very equivocal behavior. For some moments he remained silent, merely looking me inquisitively in the face. But presently he threw his head to one side and elevated his eyebrows to a great extent. Then he spread out the palms of his hands and shrugged up his shoulders. Then he winked with the right eye. Then he repeated the operation with the left. Then he shut them both up very tight. Then he opened them both so very wide that I became seriously alarmed for the consequences. Then, applying his thumb to his nose, he thought proper to make an indescribable movement with the rest of his fingers. Finally, setting his arms akimbo, he condescended to reply. I can call to mind only the beads of his discourse, he would be obliged to me if I would hold my tongue. He wished none of my advice. He despised all my insinuations. He was old enough to take care of himself. Did I still think him baby, damn it? Did I mean to say anything against his character? Did I intend to insult him? Was I a fool? Was my maternal parent aware, in a word, of my absence from the domiciliary residence? He would put this latter question to me as a man of veracity, and he would bind himself to abide by my reply. Once more he would demand explicitly if my mother knew that I was out. My confusion, he said, betrayed me, and he would be willing to bet the devil his head that she did not. Mr. Dammit did not pause for my rejoinder. Turning upon his heel, he left my presence with undignified precipitation. It was well for him that he did so. My feelings had been wounded. Even my anger had been aroused. For once I would have taken him up upon his insulting wager. I would have won for the arch-enemy of Mr. Dammit's little head. For the fact is, my mamma was very well aware of my merely temporary absence from home. But Kodashefa met ahead. Heaven gives relief, as the Muslims say when you tread upon their toes. It was in pursuance of my duty that I had been insulted, and I bore the insult like a man. It now seemed to me, however, that I had done all that could be required of me in the case of this miserable individual, and I resolved to trouble him no longer with my counsel, but to leave him to his conscience and himself. But although I forbore to intrude with my advice, I could not bring myself to give up his society altogether. I even went so far as to humor some of his less reprehensible propensities, and there were times when I found myself lauding his wicked jokes, as epicures do mustard, with tears in my eyes. So profoundly did it grieve me to hear his evil talk. One fine day, having strolled out together, arm in arm, our route held us in the direction of a river. There was a bridge, and we resolved to cross it. It was roofed over by the way of protection from the weather, 
and the archway, having but few windows, was thus very uncomfortably dark. As we entered the passage, the contrast between the external glare and the interior gloom struck heavily upon my spirits. Not so upon those of the unhappy Dammit, who offered to bet the devil his head that I was hipped. He seemed to be in an unusually good humor. He was excessively lively, so much so that I entertained to know not what of uneasy suspicion. It is not impossible that he was affected with the transcendentals. I am not well enough versed, however, in the diagnosis of this disease to speak with decision upon the point, and unhappily there were none of my friends of the dial present. I suggest the idea, nevertheless, because of a certain species of austere Mary Andrewism which seemed to beset my poor friend, and caused him to make quite a tomfool of himself. Nothing would serve him but wriggling and skipping about under and over everything that came in his way, now shouting out and now lisping out, all manner of odd little and big words, yet preserving the gravest face in the world all the time. I really could not make up my mind whether to kick or to pity him. At length, having passed nearly across the bridge, we approached the termination of the footway, when our progress was impeded by a turnstile of some height. Through this I made my way quietly, pushing it around as usual. But this turn would not serve the turn of Mr. Dammit. He insisted upon leaping the stile, and said he could cut a pigeon wing over it in the air. Now this, conscientiously speaking, I did not think he could do. The best pigeon-winger over all kinds of style was my friend Mr. Carlyle, and as I knew he could not do it, I would not believe that it could be done by Toby Dammit. I therefore told him, in so many words, that he was a braggadocio, and could not do what he said. For this I had reason to be sorry afterward, for he straightway offered to bet the devil his head that he could. I was about to reply, notwithstanding my previous resolutions, with some remonstrance against his impiety, when I heard close at my elbow a slight cough, which sounded very much like the ejaculation, ahem. I started and looked about me in surprise. My glance at length fell into a nook of the framework of the bridge, and upon the figure of a little lame old gentleman of venerable aspect. Nothing could be more reverend than his whole appearance, for he not only had on a full suit of black, but his shirt was perfectly clean, and the collar turned very neatly down over a white cravat, while his hair was parted in front like a girl's. His hands were clasped pensively together over his stomach, and his two eyes were carefully rolled up into the top of his head. Upon observing him more closely, I perceived that he wore a black silk apron over his small clothes, and this was a thing which I thought very odd. Before I had time to make any remark, however, upon so singular a circumstance, he interrupted me with a second, ahem. To this observation I was not immediately prepared to reply. The fact is, remarks of this laconic nature are nearly unanswerable. I have known a quarterly review, nonplussed by the word fudge. I am not ashamed to say, therefore, that I turned to Mr. Dammit for assistance. Dammit, said I, what are you about? Don't you hear? 
the gentleman says, ahem. I looked sternly at my friend while I thus addressed him, for, to say the truth, I felt particularly puzzled, and when a man is particularly puzzled, he must knit his brows and look savage, or else he is pretty sure to look like a fool. Damn it, observed I, although this sounded very much like an oath, than which nothing was further from my thoughts. Damn it, I suggested. The gentleman says, ahem. I do not attempt to defend my remark on the score of profundity. I did not think it profound myself. But I have noticed that the effect of our speeches is not always proportionate with their importance in our own eyes. And if I had shot Mr. D. through and through with the Paxian bomb, or knocked him in the head with the poets and poetry of America, he could hardly have been more discomfited than when I addressed him with those simple words. Damn it, what are you about? Don't you hear? The gentleman says, ahem. You don't say so gasped he at length after turning more colors than a pirate runs up one after the other when chased by a man-of-war are you quite sure he said that well at all events i am in for it now and may as well put a bold face upon the matter here goes then ahem at this the little gentleman seemed pleased god only knows why he left his station at the nook of the bridge, limped forward with a gracious air, took Dammit by the hand, and shook it cordially, looking all the while straight up in his face with an air of the most unadulterated benignity which it is possible for the mind of man to imagine. "'I am quite sure you will win it, Dammit,' said he with the frankest of all smiles. "'But we are obliged to have a trial, you know.' For the sake of mere form. Ahem, replied my friend, taking off his coat with a deep sigh, tying a pocket handkerchief around his waist, and producing an unaccountable alteration in his countenance by twisting up his eyes and bringing down the corners of his mouth. Ahem, and ahem, said he again after a pause. And not another word more than a hem did I ever know him to say after that. Aha, thought I, without expressing myself aloud, this is quite a remarkable silence on the part of Toby Dammit, and is no doubt a consequence of his verbosity upon a previous occasion. One extreme induces another. I wonder if he has forgotten the many unanswerable questions which he propounded to me so fluently on the day when I gave him my last lecture. At all events, he is cured of the transcendentals. Ahem, here replied Toby, just as if he had been reading my thoughts, and looking like a very old sheep in a reverie. The old gentleman now took him by the arm, and led him more into the shade of the bridge, a few paces back from the turnstile. My good fellow, he said, I make it a point of conscience to allow you this much run. Wait here till I make my place by the stile, so that I may see whether you go over it handsomely and transcendentally, and don't omit any flourishes of the pigeon wing. A mere form, you know. I will say one, two, three, and away. Mind you start at the word away. Here he took his position by the stile, 
paused a moment as in profound reflection, then looked up and I thought smiled very slightly, then tightened the strings of his apron, then took a long look at Dammit, and finally gave the word as agreed upon. One, two, three, and away! Punctually at the word away, my poor friend set off in a strong gallop. The style was not very high like Mr. Lord's, nor yet very low like that of Mr. Lord's reviewers, but upon the whole I made sure that he would clear it. And then what if he did not? Ah, that was the question. What if he did not? What right, said I, had the old gentleman to make any other gentleman jump? The little old dot and carry one. Who is he? If he asks me to jump, I won't do it. That's flat, and I don't care who the devil he is. The bridge, as I say, was arched and covered in, in a very ridiculous manner, and there was a most uncomfortable echo about it at all times, an echo which I never before so particularly observed as when I uttered the four last words of my remark. But what I said, or what I thought, or what I heard occupied only an instant. In less than five seconds from his starting, my poor Toby had taken the leap. I saw him run nimbly and spring grandly from the floor of the bridge, cutting the most awful flourishes with his legs as he went up. I saw him high in the air, pigeon-winging it to admiration, just over the top of the stile. And of course I thought it an unusually singular thing that he did not continue to go over. But the whole leap was the affair of a moment, and before I had a chance to make any profound reflections, down came Mr. Dammit on the flat of his back, on the same side of the stile from which he had started. At the same instant I saw the old gentleman limping off at the top of his speed, having caught and wrapped up in his apron something that fell heavily into it from the darkness of the arch, just over the turnstile. At all this I was much astonished, but I had no leisure to think, for Dammit lay particularly still, and I concluded that his feelings had been hurt and that he stood in need of my assistance. I hurried up to him and found that he had received what might be termed a serious injury. The truth is, he had been deprived of his head, which after a close search I could not find anywhere. So I determined to take him home and send for the homeopathists. In the meantime, a thought struck me, and I threw open an adjacent window of the bridge when the sad truth flashed upon me at once. About five feet just above the top of the turnstile, and crossing the arch of the footpath so as to constitute a brace, there extended a flat iron bar, lying with its breadth horizontally, and forming one of a series that served to strengthen the structure throughout its extent. With the edge of this brace it appeared evident that the neck of my unfortunate friend had come precisely in contact. He did not long survive his terrible loss. The homeopathists did not give him little enough physic, and what little they did give him he hesitated to take. So in the end he grew worse, and at length died, a lesson to all riotous livers. I bedewed his grave with my tears, worked at a bar sinister on his family escutcheon, and for the general expenses of his funeral sent in my very moderate bill to the transcendentalists. The scoundrels refused to pay it, 
so I had Mr. Demet dug up at once and sold him for dog's meat. End of section 6 Thou Art the Man by Edgar Allan Poe I will now play the Oedipus to the Rattleboro Enigma. I will expound to you, as I alone can, the secret of the enginery that affected the Rattleboro miracle. The one, the true, the admitted, the undisputed, the indisputable miracle, which put a definite end to infidelity among the Rattleburgers and converted to the orthodoxy of the Grand Dames all the carnal-minded who had ventured to be skeptical before, which I should be sorry to discuss in a tone of unsuitable levity, occurred in the summer of 18. Mr. Barnabas Shuttleworthy, one of the wealthiest and most respectable citizens of the borough, had been missing for several days under circumstances which gave rise to suspicion of foul play. Mr. Shuttleworthy had set out from Rattleboro very early one Saturday morning, on horseback, with the avowed intention of proceeding to the city of about fifteen miles distant, and of returning the night of the same day. Two hours after his departure, however, his horse returned without him, and without the saddlebags which had been strapped on his back at starting. The animal was wounded, too, and covered with mud. These circumstances naturally gave rise to much alarm among the friends of the missing man, and when it was found on Sunday morning that he had not yet made his appearance, the whole borough arose in mass to go and look for his body. The foremost and most energetic in instituting this search was the bosom friend of Mr. Shuttleworthy, Mr. Charles Goodfellow, or, as he was universally called, Charlie Goodfellow, or Old Charlie Goodfellow. Now whether it is a marvelous coincidence, or whether it is that the name itself has an imperceptible effect upon the character, I have never yet been able to ascertain. But the fact is unquestionable, that there never yet was any person named Charles who was not an open, manly, honest, good-natured, and frank-hearted fellow, with a rich, clear voice, that did you good to hear it, and an eye that looked you always straight in the face, as much as to say, I have a clear conscience myself, am afraid of no man, and am altogether above doing a mean action. And thus all the hearty, careless, walking gentlemen of the stage are very certain to be called Charles. Now, old Charlie Goodfellow, although they had been in Rattleboro not longer than six months or thereabouts, and although nobody knew anything about him before he came to settle in the neighborhood, had experienced no difficulty in the world in making the acquaintance of all the respectable people in the borough. Not a man of them, but would have taken his bare word for a thousand at any moment. And as for the women, there is no saying what they would have not done to oblige him. And all this came of his having been christened Charles, and of his possessing, in consequence, that ingenuous face which is proverbial the very best letter of recommendation. I have already said that Mr. Shuttleworthy was one of the most respectable, and undoubtedly he was the most wealthy man in Rattleboro, while old Charlie Goodfellow was upon an intimate terms with him as if he had been his own brother. The two old gentlemen were next-door neighbors, and although Mr. Shuttleworthy seldom, if ever, visited old Charlie, and never was known to take a meal in his house, still this did not prevent the two friends from being exceedingly intimate, as I have just observed. For old Charlie never let a day pass without stepping in three or four times to see how his neighbor came on, and very often he would stay to breakfast or tea, and almost always to dinner, and then the amount of wine that was made way with by the two cronies at a sitting, it would really be a difficult thing to ascertain. Old Charlie's favorite beverage was Chateau Margaux, and it appeared to do Mr. Shuttleworthy's heart good to see the old fellow swallow it, as he did, court after court. So that one day, when the wine was in and the wit as a natural consequence, somewhat out, he said to his crony, as he slapped him upon the back, I tell you what it is, old Charlie, 
You are, by all odds, the hardiest old fellow I ever came across in all my born days. And since you love to guzzle the wine of that fashion, I'll be darned if I don't have to make thee a present of a big box of the Chateau Margaux. Odd wrought me. Mr. Shuttleworthy had a sad habit of swearing. Although he seldom went beyond, odd wrought me, or by gosh, or by the jolly golly. Odd wrought me, says he. If I don't send an order to town this very afternoon for a double box of the best that can be got, and I'll make you a present of it, I will. You needn't say a word now. I will, I tell you, and there's an end of it. So look out for it. It will come to hand some of these fine days, precisely when you are looking for it the least. I mention this little bit of liberality on the part of Mr. Shuttleworthy, just by way of showing you how very intimate an understanding existed between the two friends. Well, on the Sunday morning in question, when it came to be fairly understood that Mr. Shuttleworthy had met with foul play, I never saw anyone so profoundly affected as old Charlie Goodfellow. When he first heard that the horse had come home without his master, and without his master's saddlebags, and all bloody from a pistol shot, that had gone clean through and through the poor animal's chest without quite killing him, when he heard all this, he turned as pale as if the missing man had been his own dear brother or father, and shivered and shook all over as if he had a fit of the egg. At first he was much too overpowered with grief to be able to do anything at all, or to concert upon any plan of action so that for a long time he endeavored to dissuade Mr. Shuttleworthy's other friends from making a stir about the matter, thinking it best to wait a while, say for a week or two, or a month, or two, to see if something wouldn't turn up, or if Mr. Shuttleworthy wouldn't come in the natural way, and explain his reasons for sending his horse on before. I dare say you have often observed this disposition to temporize or to procrastinate in people who are laboring under any very poignant sorrow. Their powers of mind seem to be rendered torpid, so that they have a horror of anything like action, and like nothing in the world so well as to lie quietly in bed and nurse their grief, as the old ladies express it, that is to say, ruminate over the trouble. The people of Rattleborough had indeed so high an opinion of the wisdom and discretion of old Charlie, that the greater part of them felt disposed to agree with him, and not make a stir in the business until something should turn up, as the honest old gentleman worded it. And I believe that, after all this would have been the general determination, but for the very suspicious interference of Mr. Shuttleworthy's nephew, a young man of very dissipated habits, and otherwise of rather bad character. This nephew, whose name was Pennyfeather, would listen to nothing like reason in the matter of lying quiet, but insisted upon making immediate search for the corpse of the murdered man. This was the expression he employed, and Mr. Goodfellow acutely remarked at the time that it was a singular expression to say no more. This remark of old Charlie's, too, had great effect upon the crowd, and one of the party was heard to ask, very impressively, how it happened that young Mr. Pennyfeather was so intimately cognizant of all the circumstances connected with his wealthy uncle's disappearance, as to feel authorized to assert, distinctly and unequivocally, that his uncle was a murdered man. Hereupon some little squibbing and bickering occurred among various members of the crowd, and especially between old Charlie and Mr. Pennyfeather. Although this latter occurrence was, indeed, by no means a novelty, for no goodwill had subsisted between the parties for the last three or four months. And matters had gone even so far that Mr. Pennyworther had actually knocked down his uncle's friend for some alleged excess of liberty that the latter had taken in the uncle's house, of which the nephew was an inmate. Upon this occasion, old Charlie is said to have behaved with exemplary moderation and Christian charity. He rose from the blow, adjusted his clothes, and made no attempt at retaliation at all, merely muttering a few words about, taking summary vengeance at the first convenient opportunity, a natural and very justifiable ebullition of anger, which meant nothing, however, and beyond doubt was no sooner given vent to than forgotten. However these matters may be, 
which have no reference to the point now at issue, it is quite certain that the people of Rattleboro, principally through the persuasion of Mr. Pennyfeather, came at length to the determination of dispersion over the adjacent country in search of the missing Mr. Shuttleworthy. I say they came to this determination in the first instance. After it had been fully resolved that a search should be made, it was considered almost a matter of course that the seekers should disperse. That is to say, distribute themselves in parties, for the more thorough examination of the region round about. I forget, however, by what ingenious train of reasoning it was that old Charlie finally convinced the assembly that this was the most injudicious plan that could be pursued. Convince them, however, he did. All except Mr. Pennyfeather. And in the end, it was arranged that a search should be instituted, carefully and very thoroughly, by the burghers en masse, old Charlie himself leading the way. As for the matter of that, there could have been no better pioneer than old Charlie, whom everybody knew to have the eye of a lynx. But although he led them in all manner of out-of-the-way holes and corners, by routes that nobody had ever suspected of existing in the neighborhood, and although the search was incessantly kept up day and night for nearly a week, still no trace of Mr. Shuttleworthy could be discovered. When I say no trace, however, I must not be understood to speak literally, for trace, to some extent, there certainly was. The poor gentleman had been tracked by this path coming out again into the main road and cutting off about half a mile of the regular distance. Half hidden by the brambles to the right of the lane, and opposite this pool all vestige of the track was lost sight of. It appeared, however, that a struggle of some nature had there taken place, and it seemed as if some large and heavy body, much larger and heavier than a man, had been drawn from the bypath to the pool. This ladder was carefully dragged twice, but nothing was found, and the party was upon the point of going away, in despair of coming to any result, when Providence suggested to Mr. Goodfellow the expediency of draining the water off altogether. This project was received with cheers, and many high compliments to old Charlie upon this sagacity and consideration. As many of the burghers had brought spades with them, supposing that they might possibly be called upon to disinter a corpse, the drain was easily and speedily effected, and no sooner was the bottom visible than right in the middle of the mud that remained was discovered a black silk velvet waistcoat, which nearly everyone present immediately recognized as the property of Mr. Pennyfeather. This waistcoat was much torn and covered with blood, and there were several persons among the party who had a distinct remembrance of its having been worn by its owner on the very morning of Mr. Shuttleworthy's departure for the city. While there were others again ready to testify upon oath if required that Mr. P. did not wear the garment in question at any period during the remainder of that memorable day, nor could anyone be found to say that he had seen it upon Mr. P.'s person at any period at all subsequent to Mr. Shuttleworthy's disappearance. Matters now wore a very serious aspect for Mr. Pennyfeather, and it was observed as an indubitable confirmation of the suspicions which were excited against him, that he grew exceedingly pale, and when asked what he had to say for himself, was utterly incapable of saying a word. Hereupon the few friends his riotous mode of living had left him, deserted him at once to a man, and were even more clamorous than his ancient and avowed enemies for his instantaneous arrest. But, on the other hand, the magnanimity of Mr. Goodfellow shone forth with only the more brilliant luster through contrast. He made a warm and intensely eloquent defense of Mr. Pennyfeather, in which he alluded more than once to his own sincere forgiveness of that wild young gentleman, the heir of the worthy Mr. Shuttleworthy, for the insult which he, the young gentleman, had no doubt in the heat of passion, thought proper to put upon him, Mr. Goodfellow. He forgave him for it, he said from the very bottom of his heart, and for himself, Mr. Goodfellow, so far from pushing the suspicious circumstances to extremity, which he was sorry to say, really had arisen against Mr. Pennyfeather, he, Mr. Goodfellow, would make every exertion in his power, would employ all the little eloquence in his possession to, 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 
softened down. As much as he could conscientiously do so, the worst features of this really exceedingly perplexing piece of business. Mr. Goodfellow went on for some half hour longer in this strain, very much to the credit both of his head and of his heart, but your warm-hearted people are seldom opposite in their observations. They run into all sorts of blunders, counter-temps and mal apropoisms in the hot-headedness of their zeal to serve a friend, thus often with the kindest intentions in the world, doing infinitely more to prejudice his cause than to advance it. So, in the present instance, it turned out with all the eloquence of old Charlie. For although he labored earnestly in behalf of the suspected, yet it so happened, somehow or other, that every syllable he uttered of which the direct but unwitting tendency was not to exalt the speaker in the good opinion of his audience, had the effect to deepen the suspicion already attached to the individual whose cause he pleaded, and to arouse against him the fury of the mob. One of the most unaccountable errors committed by the orator was his allusion to the suspected as the heir of the worthy old gentleman Mr. Shuttleworthy. The people had really never thought of this before. They had only remembered certain threats of disinheritance uttered a year or two previously by the uncle, who had no living relative except the nephew, and they had, therefore, always looked upon his disinheritance as a matter that was settled. So single-minded a race of beings were the Rattleburgers. But the remark of old Charlie brought them at once to a consideration of this point, and thus gave them to see the possibility of the threats having been nothing more than a threat. And straightway hereupon arose the natural question of, of qui bono, a question that tended even more than the waistcoat to fasten the terrible crime upon the young man. And here, lest I may be misunderstood, permit me to digress for one moment merely to observe that the exceedingly brief and simple Latin phrase which I have employed is invariably mistranslated and misconceived Qui bono? In all the cracked novels and elsewhere, in those of Mrs. Gore, for example, the author of Cecil, a lady who quotes all tongues from the Chaldean to Chicksaw, and has helped to her learning as needed upon a systematic plan by Mr. Beckford. In all the cracked novels, I say, from those of Bulwer and Dickens to those of Turnapenny and Ainsworth, the two little Latin words qui bono are rendered to what purpose, or as if quo bono, to what good. Their true meaning, nevertheless, is for whose advantage qui to whom bono is it for a benefit it is a purely legal phrase and applicable precisely in cases such as we have now under consideration where the probability of the doer of a deed hinges upon the probability of the benefit accruing to this individual or to that from the deed's accomplishment now in the present instance the question qui bono very pointedly implicated mr pennyfeather his uncle had threatened him after making a will in his favor with disinheritance but the threat had not been actually kept the original will, it appeared, had not been altered. Had it been altered, the only supposable motive for murder on the part of the suspected would have been the ordinary one of revenge, and even this would have been counteracted by the hope of reinstation into the good graces of the uncle. But the will being unaltered, while the threat to alter remained suspended over the nephew's head, there appears at once the very strongest possible inducement for the atrocity, and so concluded, very sagaciously, the worthy citizens of the borough of Rattle. Mr. Pennyfeather was accordingly arrested upon the spot, and the crowd, after some search, proceeded homeward, having him in custody. On the route, however, another circumstance occurred tending to confirm the suspicion entertained. Mr. Goodfellow, whose zeal led him to be always a little in advance of the party, was seen suddenly to run forward a few paces, stoop, and then apparently to pick up some small object from the grass. Having quickly examined it, he was observed, too, to make a sort of half-attempt at concealing it in his coat pocket. But this action was noticed, as I say, and consequently prevented, when the object picked up was found to be a Spanish knife, 
which a dozen persons at once recognized as belonging to Mr. Pennyfeather. Moreover, his initials were engraved upon the handle. The blade of this knife was open and bloody. No doubt now remained of the guilt of the nephew, and immediately upon reaching Rattleborough he was taken before a magistrate for examination. Here matters again took a most unfavorable turn. The prisoner, being questioned as to his whereabouts on the morning of Mr. Shuttleworthy's disappearance, had absolutely the audacity to acknowledge that on that very morning he had been out with his rifle deer-stalking, in the immediate neighborhood of the pool where the blood-stained waistcoat had been discovered through the sagacity of Mr. Goodfellow. This latter now came forward, and with tears in his eyes asked permission to be examined. He said that a stern sense of the duty he owed his maker, not less than his fellow men, would permit him no longer to remain silent. Hitherto the sincerest affection for the young man, notwithstanding the latter's ill-treatment of himself, Mr. Goodfellow, had induced him to make every hypothesis which imagination could suggest, by the way of endeavoring to account for what appeared suspicious in the circumstances that told so seriously against Mr. Pennyfeather. But these circumstances were now altogether too convincing, too damning. He would hesitate no longer. He would tell all he knew, although his heart, Mr. Goodfellow's, should absolutely burst asunder in the effort. He then went on to state that, on the afternoon of the day previous to Mr. Shuttleworthy's departure for the city, that worthy old gentleman had mentioned to his nephew, in his hearing, Mr. Goodfellow's, that his object in going to town on the morrow was to make a deposit of an unusually large sum of money in the Farmers and Mechanics Bank, and that then and there, the said Mr. Shuttleworthy had distinctly avowed to the said nephew his irrevocable determination of rescinding the will originally made, and of cutting him off with a shilling. He, the witness, now solemnly called upon the accused to state whether what he, the witness, had just stated, was or was not the truth in every substantial particular. Much to the astonishment of everyone present, Mr. Pennyfeather frankly admitted that it was. The magistrate now considered it his duty to send a couple of constables to search the chamber of the accused in the house of his uncle. From this search they almost immediately returned with the well-known steel-bound, russet-leather pocket-book which the old gentleman had been in the habit of carrying for years. Its valuable contents, however, had been abstracted, and the magistrate in vain endeavored to extort from the prisoner the use which had been made of them, or the place of their concealment. Indeed, he obstinately denied all knowledge of the matter. The constables also discovered, between the bed and sacking of the unhappy man, a shirt and neck handkerchief both marked with the initials of his name, and both hideously besmeared with the blood of the victim. At this juncture, it was announced that the horse of the murdered man had just expired in the stable from the effects of the wound he had received, and it was proposed by Mr. Goodfellow that a post-mortem examination of the beast should be immediately made, with a view, if possible, of discovering the ball. This was accordingly done, and as if to demonstrate beyond a question the guilt of the accused, Mr. Goodfellow, after considerable searching in the cavity of the chest, was enabled to detect and to pull forth a bullet of very extraordinary size, which, upon trial, was found to be exactly adapted to the bore of Mr. Pennyfeather's rifle, while it was far too large for that of any other person in the borough or its vicinity. To render the matter even sure yet, however, this bullet was discovered to have a flaw or seam at right angles to the usual suture, and upon examination, this seam corresponded precisely with an accidental ridge or elevation in a pair of molds acknowledged by the accused himself to be his own property. Upon finding of this bullet, the examining magistrate refused to listen to any farther testimony, and immediately committed the prisoner for trial, declining resolutely to take any bail in the case, although against this severity Mr. Goodfellow very warmly remonstrated, and offered to become surety in whatever amount might be required. 
This generosity on the part of old Charlie was only in accordance with the whole tenor of his amiable and chivalrous conduct during the entire period of his sojourn in the borough of Rattle. In the present instance, the worthy man was so entirely carried away by the excessive warmth of his sympathy that he seemed to have quite forgotten when he offered to go bail for his young friend that he himself, Mr. Goodfellow, did not possess a single dollar's worth of property upon the face of the earth. The result of the committal may be readily foreseen. Mr. Pennyfeather, amid the loud execrations of all Rattleboro, was brought to trial at the next criminal sessions, when the chain of circumstantial evidence, strengthened as it was by some additional damning facts, which Mr. Goodfellow's sensitive conscientiousness forbade him to withhold from the court, was considered so unbroken and so thoroughly conclusive that the jury, without leaving their seats, returned an immediate verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Soon afterward, the unhappy wretch received sentence of death and was remanded to the county jail to await the inexorable vengeance of the law. In the meantime, the noble behavior of old Charlie Goodfellow had doubly endeared him to the honest citizens of the borough. He became ten times a greater favorite than ever, and as a natural result of the hospitality with which he was treated, he relaxed, as it were, perforce the extremely parsimonious habits which his poverty had hitherto impelled him to observe, and very frequently had little reunions at his own house. When wit and jollity reigned supreme, dampened a little, of course, by the occasional remembrance of the untoward and melancholy fate which impended over the nephew of the late lamented bosom friend of the generous host. One fine day, this magnanimous old gentleman was agreeably surprised at the receipt of the following letter. Charles Goodfellow, Esquire, Rattleboro, from HFB and Company, Chateau Margot, A number one, six dozen bottles, half gross. Charles Goodfellow, Esquire, Dear Sir, in conformity with an order transmitted to our firm about two months since, by our esteemed correspondent, Mr. Barnabas Shuttleworthy, we have the honor of forwarding this morning, to your address, a double box of Chateau Margaux of the Antelope brand, Violet Seal, box numbered and marked as per margin. We remain, sir, your most obedient servants, Hogs, Frogs, Boggs, and Company. City of June 21st, 18. P.S. The box will reach you by wagon on the day after your receipt of this letter. Our respects to Mr. Shuttleworthy, H.F.B. and Company. The fact is that Mr. Goodfellow had, since the death of Mr. Shuttleworthy, given over all expectation of ever receiving the promised Chateau Margaux, and he therefore looked upon it now as a sort of especial dispensation of providence in his behalf. He was highly delighted, of course, and in the exuberance of his joy invited a large party of friends to a petite supper on the morrow for the purpose of broaching the good old Mr. Shuttleworthy's present. Not that he said anything about the good old Mr. Shuttleworthy when he issued the invitations. The fact is, he thought much and concluded to say nothing at all. He did not mention to anyone, if I remember aright, that he received a present of Chateau Margaux. He merely asked his friends to come and help him drink some, of a remarkable fine quality and rich flavor that he had ordered up from the city a couple of months ago, and of which he would be in the receipt upon the morrow. I have often puzzled myself to imagine why it was that old Charlie came to the conclusion to say nothing about having received the wine from his old friend, but I could never precisely understand his reason for the silence, although he had some excellent and very magnanimous reason, no doubt. The morrow at length arrived, and with it a very large and highly respectable company at Mr. Goodfellow's house. Indeed, half the borough was there, I myself among the number, but much to the vexation of the host, the Chateau Margaux did not arrive until a late hour and when the sumptuous supper supplied by old Charlie had been done very ample justice by the guests. It came at length, however, a monstrously big box of it there was too, 
and as the whole party were in excessively good humor, it was decided nem con that it should be lifted upon the table and its contents disemboweled forthwith. No sooner said than done. I lent a helping hand, and in a trice we had the box upon the table, in the midst of all the bottles and glasses, not a few of which were demolished in the scuffle. Old Charlie, who was pretty much intoxicated and excessively red in the face, now took a seat, with an air of mock dignity, at the head of the board, and thumped furiously upon it with a decanter, calling upon the company to keep order during the ceremony of disinterring the treasure. After some vociferation, quiet was at length fully restored, and as very often happens in similar cases, a profound and remarkable silence ensued. Being then requested to force open the lid, I complied, of course, with an infinite deal of pleasure. I inserted a chisel, and giving it a slight taps with a hammer, the top of the box flew suddenly off, and at the same instant there sprang up into a sitting position, directly facing the host, the bruised, bloody, and nearly putrid corpse of the murdered Mr. Shuttleworthy himself. It gazed for a few seconds, fixedly and sorrowfully, with its decaying and lackluster eyes, full into the countenance of Mr. Goodfellow, uttered slowly, but clearly and impressively the words, Thou art the man and then falling over the side of the chest as if thoroughly satisfied, stretched out its limbs quiveringly upon the table. The scene that ensued is altogether beyond description. The rush for the doors and windows was terrific, and many of the most robust men in the room fainted outright through sheer horror. But after the first wild, shrieking burst of affright, all eyes were directed to Mr. Goodfellow. If I live a thousand years, I can never forget the more than mortal agony which was depicted in that ghastly face of his so lately rubicund with triumph and wine. For several minutes he sat rigidly as a statue of marble, his eyes seeming, in the intense vacancy of their gaze, to be turned inward and absorbed in the contemplation of his own miserable, murderous soul. At length their expression turned to flash suddenly out into the external world, when with a quick leap he sprang from his chair, and falling heavily with his head and shoulders upon the table, and in contact with the corpse, poured out rapidly and vehemently a detailed confession of the hideous crime for which Mr. Pennyfeather was then imprisoned and doomed to die. What he recounted was in substance this. He followed his victim to the vicinity of the pool, there shot his horse with a pistol, dispatched its rider with the butt-end, possessed himself of the pocket-book and, supposing the horse dead, dragged it with great labor to the brambles by the pond. Upon his own beast he slung the corpse of Mr. Shuttleworthy and thus bore it to a secure place of concealment a long distance off through the woods and thus bore it to a secure place of concealment a long distance off through the woods. The waistcoat, the knife, the pocketbook, and bullet had been placed by himself where found, with the view of avenging himself upon Mr. Pennyfeather. He had also contrived the discovery of the stained handkerchief and shirt. Towards the end of the blood-churning recital the words of the guilty wretch faltered and grew hollow. When the record was finally exhausted he arose, staggered backward from the table, and fell, dead. The means by which this happily timed confession was extorted, although efficient, were simple indeed. Mr. Goodfellow's excess of frankness had disgusted me, and excited my suspicions from the first. I was present when Mr. Pennyfeather had struck him, and the fiendish expression which then arose upon his countenance, although momentary, assured me that this threat of vengeance would, if possible, be rigidly fulfilled. I was thus prepared to view the maneuvering of old Charlie in a very different light from that in which it was regarded by the good citizens of Rattleborough. I saw at once that all the criminating discoveries arose, either directly or indirectly from himself, but the fact which clearly opened my eyes to the true state of the case was the affair of the bullet, found by Mr. G. in the carcass of the horse. I had not forgotten, 
although the Rattlebergers had, that there was a hole where the ball had entered the horse and another where it went out. If it were found in the animal then, after having made its exit, I saw clearly that it must have been deposited by the person who found it. The bloody shirt and handkerchief confirmed the idea suggested by the bullet, for the blood on examination proved to be capital claret, and no more. When I came to think of these things, and also of the late increase of liberality and expenditure on the part of Mr. Goodfellow, I entertained a suspicion which was none the less strong because I kept it altogether to myself. In the meantime, I instituted a rigorous private search for the corpse of Mr. Shuttleworthy, and for good reasons searched in quarters as divergent as possible from those to which Mr. Goodfellow conducted his party. The result was that, after some days, I came across an old dry well, the mouth of which was nearly hidden by brambles, and here at the bottom I discovered what I sought. Now it so happened that I had overheard the colloquy between the two cronies, where Mr. Goodfellow had contrived to cajole his host into the promise of a box of Chateau Margaux. Upon this hint I acted. I procured a stiff piece of whalebone, thrust it down the throat of the corpse, and deposited the latter in an old wine box taking care so to double the body up as to double the whalebone with it. In this manner I had to press forcibly upon the lid to keep it down while I secured it with nails, and I anticipated, of course, that as soon as these latter were removed, the top would fly off and the body up. Having thus arranged the box, I marked, numbered, and addressed it as already told, and then writing a letter in the name of the wine merchants with whom Mr. Shuttleworthy dealt, I gave instructions to my servant to wheel the box to Mr. Goodfellow's door, in a barrow, at a given signal for myself. For the words which I intended the corpse to speak, I confidently depended upon my ventriloquial abilities. For their effect, I counted upon the conscience of the murderous wretch. I believe there is nothing more to be explained. Mr. Pennyfeather was released upon the spot, inherited the fortune of his uncle, profited by the lessons of experience, turned over a new leaf, and led happily ever afterward a new life. End of Section 7 Recording by Simon Smoke Why the Little Frenchman Wears His Hand in a Sling by Edgar Allan Poe. It's on my visiting card, sure enough, and it's them that's all a pink satin paper that any gentleman places may behold the interesting words. Sir Patrick O'Grandison, Baronet, 39 Southampton Row, Russell Square, Paris, Oblomstreet. And should you be waiting to discover who is the pink of politeness quite, and the lighter of the hot tongue in the whole city of London? Why, it's just myself. And they that same is no wonder at all at all. So be pleased to stop curling your nose. For every inch of the six wakes that I've been a gentleman, and left out with the back throwing to take up with the baronessy, it's Patrick that's been living like a holy emperor and getting the education and the graces. Yeah. <laughs> and would it be a blessed thing for, for your spirits if you could lay your two papers just upon Sir Patrick O'Grandison, Baronet, when he's already dressed for the opera or stepping into the brisky for the drive into the Hyde Park? But it's the elegant big figure that I ave, for the ration of which all the ladies fall in love with me. 
isn't in my own sweet self now don't measure the six foot and the three inches more nor that in my stockings and that I'm exceedingly well proportioned all over to match and it is really more than three foot and a bit that there is anyhow of the little old foreigner Frenchman that lives just over the way and that's a ogling and a goggling the whole day and bad luck to him and the porty witty maester's trackle that's my own next-door neighbor god bless her and a most particular friend and acquaintance you perceive the little spalpeen is summoned down in the mouth and wears his left hand in a sling and it's for that same thing by your love that i'm going to give you the good reason the truth of the whole matter is just simple enough for the very first day that i come from connaught and showed my swayed little self in the straight to the wedding who was looking through the window it was a gone case altogether with the heart of the pretty mistress trackle i perceived it you see all at once and no mistake and that's god's truth first of all it was up with the windy in a jiffy, and then she threw open her two papers to the utmost, and then it was a little gold spy class that she clapped tight to one of them, and devil may burn me if I didn't speak to me as plain as a peeper could speak. And says it through the spy glass. Ooh, the tip of the morning to ye, sir, Patrick O'Grandison, Baronet, Mavornin, and it's an eh, gentleman that ye are, sure enough, and it's meself that me for the gist that'll be at your service, dear, any time o' day, at all, at all, for the asking. And it's not meself ye would have to be baiting the politeness. So I made her a bow that would have broken your heart altogether to behold, and then I pulled aft me hat with a flourish, and then I winked at her heart with both eyes. As much as to say, true for you, your sweet little creature, Mrs. Dracul, me darling, and I wish I may be drowned dead in a bog, if it's not myself, Sir Patrick O'Grandison, baronet, that'll make a whole bushel o' laugh to your ladyship in the twinkling o' the eye of a Londonderry purity. And it was the next morning shore, just as I was making up me mind whether it wouldn't be the polite thing to send a bit of writing to the witty by way of a love letter, when up come the delivery servant with an elegant card, and he told me that the name on it, for I never could read the copperplate printing on account of being left-handed, was all about Monsieur de Count, a goose, Lucchese, Major did downs, and that the whole of the devilish lingo was the spalpini long name of the little old foreigner Frenchman as lived over the way. And just with that in come the little William himself, and then he made me a breath of a bow, and then he said he had only taken the liberty of doing me the honor of giving me a call, and then he went on to palaver at a great rate and devil the bit did i comprehend what he would be at 
after the chilling me at all at all accepting and saving that he said bully woe woolly woe and told me among a bushel of lies bad luck to him that he was mad for the love of my witty mistress trackle and that my witty mrs trackle had a punch for him at the hearing of this ye may swear though i was as mad as a grasshopper but i remembered that i was sir patrick o'grandison baronet and that it wasn't altogether gentle to let the anger give the upper hand of the politeness. So I made light of the matter and kept dark and got quite sociable with the little chap. And after a while, what did he do but ask me to go with him to the widdies, saying he would give me the fashionable introduction to her ladyship. Is it there ye are? said I then to myself. And it's true for you, Patrick, that ye're the fortunatest mortal in life. We'll soon see now whether it's your sweet self or whether it's little Monsieur Maitre de Dons that Mistress Trackle is head and ears in the lawit. With that we went aft to the widdies next door, and ye may well say it was an elegant place. So it was. There was a carpet all over the floor, and in one corner there was a forty-penny, and a Jew's harp, and the devil knows what else, and in another corner was a Sophie, the beautifulest thing in all nature, and sitting on the Sophie, sure enough, there was the sweet little angel. Mistress Trackle. The tip o' the morning to ye, says I, Mrs. Trackle. And then I made such an elegant obeisance that you would have quite altogether bewildered the brain o' ye. Willy-woo, pully-woo, plump in the mud, says the little foreigner Frenchman. And sure, Mrs. Trackle, says he, that he did. Isn't this gentleman here just his reverence, Sir Patrick Grandison, Baronet? And isn't he altogether and entirely the most particular friend and acquaintance that I have in the whole world? And with that, the witty, she gets up from the shelfy and makes the sweetest curtsey nor ever was seen, and then down she sits like an angel. And then by the powers, it was that little spalpeen, Monsieur Maitre de Dons, that plumped himself right down by the right side of her. Ouch! I expected the two eyes of me would have come out of my head on the spot. I was so disparate mad. However, bait who? says I, after a while. Is it there ye are, Monsieur Maitre de Dons? And so down I plumbed on the left side of her ladyship, to be even with the villain. Botheration, it would have done your heart good to perceive the elegant double wink that I gave her just thin right in the face. With both eyes? But the little old Frenchman, he never began to suspect me at all, at all. And desperate hard it was, he made the love to her ladyship. Woolly woo, says he. 
Pulley woo, says he, plumping the mud, says he. That's all to no use, Monsieur Frog, my warning, thinks I. And I talked as hard as and fast as I could all the while, and thought it was myself just that devoured her ladyship completely and entirely, by reason of the elegant conversation that I keep up with her all about the dear box of Connet. And by and by she gave me such a sweet smile from one end of her mouth to the other that it made me as bold as a pig, and I just took hold of the end of her little finger in the most delicatest manner in nature, looking at her all the while out over the whites of my eyes. And then only perceived the cuteness of the sweet angel, for no sooner did she observe that I was after the squeezing of her flipper, than she up with energy and put it away behind her back, just as much as to say, Now thin, Sir Patrick O'Grandison, there's a bitter chance for ye, my warning, for it's not altogether the gentle thing to be after the squeezing of my flipper, rightful in the sight of that little foreign Frenchman, Monsieur Major Didons. With that, I give her a big wink, just to say, let Sir Patrick alone for the like so then tricks, and then I went easy to work, and you'd have died with the devotion to behold how cleverly I slipped my right arm between the back of the Sophie and the back of her ladyship. And there, sure enough, I found a sweet little flipper all waiting to say, the tip of the morning to ye, Sir Patrick O'Grandison, Baronet. And wasn't it myself sure that just gived in the least little bit of squeeze in the world, all in the way of a commencement, and not to be too rough with her ladyship? And oh, botheration, wasn't it the gentlest and delicatest of all the little squeezes that I got in return? Blood and thunder, Sir Patrick, my warning, thinks I to myself. It's just the mother's son of you, and nobody else at all, at all, that's the handsomest and the fortunatest young buck that ever comed out of Connet. And with that I give the flipper a big squeeze, and a big squeeze it was by the powers that her ladyship gave to me back. But it would have split the seven sides of you with the laughing to behold, just then all at once the conceited behavior of Monsieur Major de Dons. The likes of such a jabbering and a smirking and a parley wooing as he begin with her ladyship never was known before upon art. And devil may burn me if it wasn't me own very two peepers that caught him tipping her the wink out of one eye. If he wasn't me so thin, that was mad as a Kilkenny cat, I should like to be told who it was. Let me inform you, Monsieur Maitre de Dons, said I, as pearl-eyed as ever ye said. That is not the gentle thing at all at all, and not for the likes oh you, anyhow, to be after the ogling and a goggling at her ladyship in that fashion. 
and just with that such another squeeze that it was, I give her flipper all as much as to say, isn't Sir Patrick now my jewel that'll be able to the protecting of you, Mart Island? And then there comes another squeeze back, all by way of the answer. True for you, Sir Patrick. It said as plain as ever as Queeze said in the world, true for you, Sir Patrick Mavornian, and it's a proper neat gentleman ye are. That's God's truth. And with that she opened her two beautiful peepers, till I beloved they would have come out of her head altogether and entirely. She looked first as mad as a cat at Monsieur Frog, and then as smiling as all out outdoors at myself. Then, uh, and a woolly woo, pulley woo, and then with that he shoved up his two shoulders till the devil, the bit of his head, was to be discovered, and then he let down the two corners of his parity trap, and then not to have poured more of the satisfaction could I get out old spalpeen. Believe me, my jewel, it was Sir Patrick that was unreasonable mad thin, and the more by token that the Frenchman kept and wit his winking at the witty, and the witty she kept and wit the squeezing of my flipper, as much as to say, at him against Sir Patrick O'Grandison, my warning. So I just ripped out with a big oath, and says I, Ye little spalpeeny frock of a buck-throtting son of a bloody noun! And just thin, what do you think it was that her ladyship did? Trot, she jumped off from the sofa as if she was bit and made off to the door, while I turned my head round after her, in a complete bewilderment and moderation, and followed her with me to peepers. You perceive I had a reason of my own for knowing that she couldn't get down the stairs altogether and entirely, for I knew very well that I had hold of her hand, for the devil the bit had I ever let it go. And says I, isn't it the last little bit of a mistake in the world that you've been after the making here, ladyship? Come back now, that's a darling, and I'll give ye your flipper. But aft she went down the stairs like a shot, and then I turned round to the little French Ferna. <sighs> If it wasn't a spalpeeny little pot that I had hold of in my own, why then, then it wasn't, that's all. And maybe it wasn't myself that just died then outright with laughing to behold the little chap when he found out that it wasn't the witty at all at all that he had had hold of all the time, but only Sir Patrick O'Grandison. The old devil himself never beheld such a long face as he pet and as for Sir Patrick O'Grandison, Baronet, it wasn't for the likes of his reverence to be after the minding of a trifle of a mistake. Ye may just say, though, for it's God truth, that afore I left hold of the flipper of the spalpeen, which was not till after her ladyship's footman had kicked us both downstairs. I give it such a neat little broth of a squeeze as made it all up into raspberry jam. Woolly woo, says he. Pully woo, says he. God damn! And that's just the truth of the reason why he wears his left hand in a sling. End of section 8. Recording by Simon Smoke.
Hey everyone, thank you for helping make January a tremendous, wonderful, gigantic month at Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Hey, we've got some Ken Height talking about Poe. We've got Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy talking about Ligor and the Chocho coming up. So check that out. That's going on, uh, should be this week, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. So listen for this audio feed to uh to check that out and remember rate review and subscribe give us five stars wherever you listen let people know about it review us on facebook review us on instagram hey we are officially now on spotify so if you don't like listening to this on your computer you don't like listening to this on your phone and you just want to listen to it through like a speaker or something like that uh, you know however you use spotify if you're like, man, I wish they were on Spotify. I'd listen to them more often or save it or whatever. Now you can. We're on Spotify. We're also everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for making January gigantic. And we look forward to seeing you in March with the cool stuff. And remember, check the show notes for links and schedules and find out everything that's going on with Badger's Drift Studios, our friends over at Sweat Drenched Press, the gang over at Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and of course me, D.B. Spitzer. Hey, check out my Instagram, PGTTCM. All right, bye. <laughs>